1: Elise is the director of the International Projects Office or IPO at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and an adjunct lecturer at Edgewood College where she teaches research methods and the internationalization of higher education in the Doctor of Education program. She received her PhD from the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign in 2011 in education policy studies with a concentration studies in education and a methodological specialization in program evaluation. During her graduate studies she was also a Fulbright Schumann awardee to the European Union uh, Tilburg University and the recipient of multiple Title VI grants for a Turkish language study. Before coming to UW-Madison, Elise worked at KIMEP University in Almaty, Kazakhstan as an professor and director of a master degree program in teaching english to speakers of other languages her research interests focus on the intersection of space structures and scale, examining the effects of internationalization in education and language policy production processes she is also interested in issues related to language education and equity access with a focus on urban contexts. and uh at thank you for speaking with us today
0: Oh, thanks. Thanks, Sarah, for the introduction and for, uh, for everybody for um, being willing to call in and uh, call in on this presentation on a Thursday afternoon at the end, toward the end of a language learning week. I have, uh, like Sarah mentioned, um, I have um, had t- a Title VI one day in the past. And so um, I've also participated in summer um, language institutes and intensive summer programs and uh you know it is it is it is uh it requires a, a lot of cognitive load and so thanks for for um you know, calling in and um hearing a little bit about the research that i'm doing um then i would share a little bit about um kind of uh, like a little bit about uh my personal journey to central asia um and then kind of how i became interested in this research topic um and uh In addition to my presentation if you guys have any like questions or kind of um question thoughts about um you know what can you do with a phd focusing on the region or kind of different types of career paths um please feel free to kind of ask those questions as well Um, so when i was uh, writing my dissertation actually I was focusing on kind of language and education policy issues in Turkey. Um, and then as a result of kind of that research, became interested in um, the relationship between Turkey and kind of the Tur- Turkey countries in the South Caucasus and Central Asia. Uh, when I finished my dissertation and I was on the job market, I got offered a job at Kimep University in Almaty and um, thought, wow, this might be a really good opportunity to be able to do more field work and kind of develop a better understanding of how, Um, you know, the Turkish government was um, using education as a way of exercising soft power and influence um, in the region. And so what better way to do field work than to live in the region? And so that was kind of one um, primary reason I was really interested in in moving to to, um, Almaty. Um, Another reason was, um, you know, I'd been studying Turkish for uh, a number of years and wanted to um, expand that to learning um, Kazakh. And so that was kind of the second reason for, um, you know, moving to to Almaty into Kazakhstan. Um, And so when, you know, so I decided to move um, and then I had this, um, I was talking to my dad about, you know, this life choice and, you know, what he thought about this. And he was really excited. And my dad, um, he's a little bit of a polyglot. He studied a lot of different languages. He's a businessman by training, but just really loves languages. And uh, for his 60th birthday, he had um, gifted himself with um, Russian lessons. And so he was super excited that I was going to Kazakhstan, that I could learn Russian, even though my intention was to learn Kazakh. And um, he was also, he kind of also shared this anecdote, which was, um he said that a lot of people who are who were originally from the northern part of the Korean Peninsula before the war, um, if and when they went to Central Asia, um, and they would have the cold noodles, the cookie that were was like made by um, Central Asian Koreans, um, it was kind of this experience where people would have a visceral response to um, this particular noodle dish because. Um, Apparently, some of the ways, some of the way that this noodle dish was prepared and like the flavor profile maintained um, some similarity to kind of like historic roots to um, the Hamgyong province, which many um, Kazakhstani Koreans can kind of like trace their history back to, because it was primarily Koreans from that province who had migrated up north to the Far East. And so, um, and for my father who had uh, been internally displaced uh, within the Korean Peninsula uh, because of the war, um, this was particularly personal for him. Um, this idea that he could have some kind of connection um, to um, this food memory. Um, of this place that he had to leave um, when he was you know, five years old. So he was really excited for me to uh, be able to experience that even though that wasn't my own experience. And so um, that was you know, just something that was in the back of my mind as I went to Kazakhstan and um, you know, kind of was learning about um, a, a number of different things uh, in, in, in the context of where I was living and working. Um, and so that kind of also informs my interest in this broader project. Um, So the paper that I'm talking about today is focusing on Kazakhstani-Koreans and really the primary objective initially was to do a comparative study of Koreans and Dungans in Kazakhstan. Uh, My colleague, Jyldis Magulova, and I had been working on a number of different projects looking at issues of language, um, education, access uh, in the city, but then also more broadly and um, wanted to look at kind of issues of access um, and achievement. Um, of these two different nationality groups um, to better understand, you know, what were the challenges? uh, What were the um, differences? What were kind of the structural issues that shaped there and mediated those experiences, et cetera? Um, But then uh, because of the the amount of data that was collected, uh, it was also kind of able to think more broadly about um, the Kazakhstani-Korean experience um, in the frame of diaspora. So the first paper that I wrote on this, kind of using this data set, was focusing on kind of language roots and migration routes of Koreans, um, you know, kind of over, over time. And so kind of really looking at their experiences through the their connection of language, language practices, et cetera. Um, and thinking about, um, and and, th- and exploring this idea of um, Kazakhstani Koreans as being um, complex diasporas. Um, the paper that I'm sharing um, about, t- Today, um, built on on this idea of Kazakhstani Koreans as a complex diaspora, um, and utilizing the idea of diaspora space, focuses on on the interview participants' notions of home and homeland. Um, And then the third kind of paper that um, I'm writing um, then kind of takes um, some of this a little bit further to talk about this concept of diasporicity um, by looking specifically at kind of everyday. Um, social socio cultural practices and community, and then um, looking at across generational differences. So just some aspects of the conceptual framework that um, I'll just kind of briefly talk about. Um, So Takeyuki Suda um, in thinking about Japanese diasporas observed, although Most diasporic descendants are culturally assimilated in their countries of birth to a considerable extent. They continue to be seen as ethnic minorities because of their foreign ethnic origins. However, when they return to their ethnic homeland, they are rarely reincorporated into the majority ethnic and ancestral population, but again, find themselves becoming ethnic minorities because of their cultural differences. Therefore, instead of unmixing ethnic groups, diaspora return migration is creating new ethnic minorities based on the cultural differences that have emerged among peoples previously united by some kind of shared descent, but have been living apart for um, generations. And um, this is, you know, uh, Takeo Suda does a lot of work looking at Japanese and Korean diasporas. Whereas this very much was captured in the experience of the interview participants that um, you know graciously share their time with us. Um, and, and also different students that I had um, interacted with um, during my time uh, at QMAP. So this kind of frames um, s- some of the underlying kind of assumptions in this paper. So the broader question informing this paper is um, how do Kazakhstani Koreans engage in constructing, shaping, negotiating and renegotiating their identities in their everyday lives? So some other concepts that I draw from in this paper um, include this idea of heterogeneity of diasporas versus um, kind of a more commonly, um, see, like commonly, commonly used monolithic ontological category. So thinking about diasporas as multiple diasporas as opposed to being one uniform thing. So in Louvo, argue that the diversity of different types of diversities within their respective migration patterns calls for actual fresh, robust and more nuanced theoretical lenses for engaging the contending issues around um, different types of experiences of immigrants and diasporas. And so this is kind of a concept that um, I draw from, uh, particularly in the first paper, in understanding that uh, when we talk about Kazakhstani Koreans or Central Asian Koreans as being a diaspora. That there's actually multiple diasporas that actually um, are within that particular over, uh, overarching group. Um, I also draw a lot from Aftar Bra's work. Um, and uh, Bra, 1996, posited, you know, all diasporic journeys are composite. They are embarked upon, lived and relived through multiple modalities. Uh, modalities, for example, of gender and race, class, religion language and generation. As such, all diasporas are differentiated, heterogeneous uh, contested spaces, even as they are implicated in the construction of a common we. Um, So it's important, um, therefore, to be attentive to the nature and the types of processes in and through which this collective is constituted. Who is empowered and who is disempowered in a construction, uh, in a specific construction of the we? How are social divisions negotiated in the construction of the we? What is the relationship of this we to its others? And who are these others? And Bra goes on to kind of, kind of develop more of a robust framework, and not just talking about diasporic journeys, but really uh, contending that there is this, or positing this idea of a diaspora space. So kind of saying that diaspora space then um, is this like intersectionality of diaspora, border, dislocation and location as a, this point of confluence of economic, political, cultural, and psychic processes. So it's within this space in which we can understand the experiences of diasporas, but also um, the people that are kind of coexisting within that space together with um, these diaspora communities. Uh, and informing and kind of structuring the experiences within this diasporic space then is, is um, understanding um, or having a relational understanding of power. And so Bra kind of talks about how um, it's really important to understand the relationships within and between diaspora communities and um, really elucidating the configurations of power which differentiates these diasporas internally as well as situ- situating them in relation to others, but also uh, in relation to the people that they are coexisting with. So in light of that, um, broad kind of talks about this multi-axial axial performative conception of power, where basically power isn't kind of this one monolithic concept, but power consists of different axes, which are um, political, cultural, and economic. And so kind of thinking in terms of those three frames and um, how power is mediated um, through these frames to structure the experiences of um, of uh, of different people within this ds space, is kind of the conceptual framework that i use for this paper um and so underlyingly then um i draw from hall's 1999 proposition that instead of asking people what their roots are like where are you from you know what is your homeland um kind of solely as kind of the character quality of defining um who they are we should really also kind of incorporate this aspect of roots i.e the different points by which they have come to um, be where they are now um, and thinking of them as some of those differences so thinking about roots but also roots um, and so the paper argues that understanding migration history that helps inform how diaspora communities like Kazakhstani Koreans are situated um, within um, this kind of particular conception of power um, as instantiated in this particular diaspora space. So to modify the question that the paper is then asking is how do Kazakhstani Koreans engage in constructing, shaping, negotiating, renegotiating their identities, their everyday lives, within kind of dynamic geopolitical contexts? And how do these experiences broadly inform theorizing around diasporic identities as well as narratives? So um, to provide kind of a a brief historical overview. So the paper kind of um, breaks the different time frames into four different waves of um, of four different waves in which um, Koreans kind of eventually wound up in Central Asia. And so the first wave is vis-a-vis kind of this uh initial kind of migration from the northern part of the peninsula from the hamgyang Hamgyang province um to the far east um starting from around the mid 19th century um and so there was up to you know at one point up to 32,000 people at that turn of the century that had migrated up Um, but this number was really in flux because um uh different groups of people were being recruited for different projects, for example, railroad, railroad, railroad construction, et cetera. So there was this northerly migration that was taking place um, in the latter part of the 19th century and then kind of like um, into the 20th century. Concurrently there was uh, forcible trans- transport of Koreans from the southern part of the peninsula. And this is particularly um, kind of starting from the turn of the century um, and through the thirties. From the southern part of the peninsula to Sakhalin Island by the Japanese to um, essentially occupy that island and to provide um, indentured labor. Um, the second wave, what I argue is the second wave in my paper, is uh, from 1937. Then we have this deport the deport the actual deportation of the majority of Koreans from um, the Far East, um, and we have the de- they're deported to Central Asia, primarily to Kazakhstan and to um, Uzbekistan or to the Kazakh SSR and to Uzbek SSR. Um, and then we also have the surrender of the Sakhalin Island to, um, to to the Soviets, um, and so we see an increase in the number of Koreans in um, in Russia because of this kind of uh, annexation or this surrendering of Sakhalin Island to 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 to, to the Russian or to the Soviet Union. Um, during that period as well, eventually, Koreans from the Sakhalin, from Sakhalin Island were allowed and, and, and given Soviet citizenship um, and allowed to kind of move within the Soviet Union. And so in the late phase, um, there were tens of thousands of people who were recorded as moving to the Far East and then to Central Asia as well, um, which is why they were included in this kind of like second wave category. The third wave then is kind of just increased population movement in general among the communist countries, um, including North Korea. And so there was some anecdotes of um, kind of more engagement um, with North Korea and mobility, etc. And then the fourth wave is um, kind of the entrance of South Korea into the nascent Kazakhstani market, um, starting from 1991 and kind of the, um, the building of those bridges and the influx of South Korean Koreans into um, the Kazakhstani uh, context as well. Um, And so just to kind of provide, you know, a visual, um, this is kind of the four major kind of migration um, paths um, that um, historians will kind of allude to um, in terms of how Koreans, you know, wind up in Central Asia or or move to Central Asia. Um, So just to kind of provide a sense of scale in terms of, you know, how many people are we talking about, um, you know, the you know it's at the top line in the gray you can see the general census population reported numbers of Koreans a total number of Koreans throughout the Soviet Union um, in these different time frames Um, and then highlighted in red in 19 in 1989 as well as the gray bars um, are the the countries where that had the largest populations of, of Koreans which included um, Russia, the Kazakh SSR, and the Uzbek SSRs, which, which again makes sense given kind of the path, the larger paths that we laid out before. That I laid out in the previous slide. Um, and then, kind of drilling down a bit, thinking about like, okay, so what does this look like in the Kazakhstani Korean context? Um, in the 1999 census, we have kind of this particular distribution of Kazakhstani Koreans throughout the country, and um, particularly. Um, as um, kind of like mobility restrictions were loosening throughout the Soviet Union, you had Koreans who are kind of migrating more and more increasingly to urban areas. And so um, the largest populations of Koreans tended to be in uh, urban areas, which and that was a trend that continued um, into um, you know the 90s as well as continues now. Um, and in the Kazakhstani context, then we have the largest Korean populations being in um, Almaty in the city, um, in um, South Kazakhstan, um, kind of particularly around Shemkent, um, increasingly in Nur-Sultan as the population there increases, um, as well as in Atro. Um, so getting to the project then, um, so the project was conducted over uh, between the years of 2015 and 2017. The interviews were con- primarily conducted in Almaty City and then uh, in South Kazakhstan Oblast. So kind of primarily around, in and around Shemkent um and then the interviews lasted roughly about 20 to uh, 20 minutes to 120 minutes um they were conducted in either english or russian depending on um what the interviewee's preference was um we used semi-structured views as kind of the mechanism by which to elicit the narratives and there were in a total there were a total of 30 people that were were interviewed you can kind of see from the general um Kind of infographic there, which has to be updated. But generally, um, the majority of the, the interviewees were kind of uh, identified as being third generation um, Kazakhstani Korean, some fourth generation Kazakhstani Korean, and a few, a handful of second, um, you know, kind of like their parents or their grandparents were people that were. Um, people who had experienced um, the deportation directly. Um, and then in, in one case, um, one woman who was really young when um, the deportation happened, actually. Um, So this is just kind of a a general kind of snapshot of the um, kind of the the participants, uh, the interview participants. Um, The majority, so it's like two-thirds of the participants were female, one-third were male. Um, The majority of the interviewees um, had some kind of um, tertiary degree, so at least a bachelor's degree. In terms of occupation, it really kind of ran the gamut in terms of um, white collar, blue collar um, professions. Everybody, all 30 people, you, um, uh, unanimously said that their home language was Russian. And in terms of ages, the ages range, the participant ages ranged from 18 to 67. Um, so the interview in terms of the interview kind of the the protocol. So like I think I mentioned earlier that um, this paper is kind of based on data that was collected for a larger project. And so we were using six six different criteria, six different categories. So, thinking about migration and resettlement, family and community, everyday life and practice, international connections, relationships and ideology, as well as language policy and preferences. And this is based on a, um, a protocol that was really designed um, to originally study, um, to do a comparative um, study of, of Dungans um, and kind of like Chinese diaspora. Um, and this paper is kind of drawing from the questions that were asked from the first and fourth categories. Um, Before I go into kind of the findings, just kind of like doing a check in terms of questions. Um, I I don't see any questions in the chat, but any anything that like anybody would like uh, a a quick follow up about in terms of doing field work or um, anything that I've talked about so far. Okay, I am seeing no hands and no comments. And so I will keep going. Okay. So in terms of thinking about roots then and family migration narratives, so generally, um, everybody in the initial interviews would say that when well, we would ask, you know, like, what, how does your family explain how you arrived in, how you came to Kazakhstan? Um, generally, everybody will default to kind of the um, they got on a train and then they wound up in Kazakhstan. So that's actually generally almost a default response. Um, and what was interesting was actually uh, as we were having conversations and um, in some cases with some younger people, as they went home and would talk to their family members asking kind of more specific questions, um, it actually elicited a much more kind of uh, nuanced perspective of the migration patterns. But in general, most people kind of um, articulated that they they. Their family had um, that their families had migrated, uh, or they they were in Central Asia as a result of um, the, the 1937 deportation. But in addition to kind of the migration narratives of how they got to um, Kazakhstan, um, three themes that emerged in relation to those um, in, in relation to the migration narratives um, kind of revolved around repression, the fear of being other or being untrustworthy, and then kind of just generally describing the deportation experience. So in terms of repression, um, as kind of the example or kind of the example anecdote that I provided here, um, you know, Lucia kind of recounted that her grandfather said um, you know, that this time of repression was a difficult time to live through. Therefore they were moved from the far East to Kazakhstan. And since they've, since then they've been living in Kazakhstan. And so it was such a repressive time uh, in some of the, the memories. Um, and that was kind of the only thing that they would use to describe the period. And so it's kind of like, there was a, a, a causal relationship between the moving to Kazakhstan and the repression that was kind of being experienced um, in the Kazakhstani Korean community in the Far East. Um, The other, the second theme that kind of emerged was aspect of fear of being other or being untrustworthy narrative. So for example, Lena, um, she speculated that her grandparents were moved from the Far East because um, she shared that the Soviet regime was afraid of Japanese spies and so on, and they, um, the koreans and her relatives were departed to S- central asia that's what i think i can't say this by statistics ring and this was reflected in a number of different um participants actually um that they were that they were told that they you know that koreans were untrustworthy that they were untrustworthy uh, trusted That they were thought that um you know that uh koreans would um uh, you know, align themselves with, um, the Japanese, um, et cetera. And so there was kind of this accepting of this narrative that, um, was, a, that was kind of, um, a pretty kind of entrenched perspective. Um, but then it, interestingly enough, this perspective of, of being othered or being untrustworthy was corroborated by a number of people, younger people who said that, you know, this image was actually kind of reproduced in their history textbooks as well. And so not only were they experiencing kind of, um, you know, this narrative as informing um, why the decision to deport Koreans, and that's why Koreans were deported to, to, to Kazakhstan and to Central Asia, but... Um, you know, students in Kazakhstan, Kazakhstani Koreans, were having this kind of told back to them um, in their, um, you know, elementary school um, history textbooks as well. And so it's kind of this double corroboration of this fear of being other um, as being the primary motivation for moving, for deporting Koreans from the Far East. And then, um, and then, the third theme, which isn't really a theme, but um, third aspect that people would kind of talk about was this aspect of just describing the trauma of um the deportation experience so Olga described you know during the war they were told to leave within 24 hours my mom told me that they couldn't take anything with them one of their children her siblings died they came from Vladivostok I think in 1937 or 1936 or 37. my mom was five years old she was born in 1932 the train stopped several times in the way so that people could get out where, whenever they wanted and so um number of people were kind of not necessarily describing um, kind of, so this isn't necessarily a theme, but um, this aspect of kind of describing the trauma and the hardship of the deportation experience was something particularly older participants um, were um, familiar with because these narratives had been kind of shared um, from, you know, previous generations. So the other thing that was really interesting, um, and I wrote about this in uh, the earlier paper, was, um, you know, I I showed on on the earlier map that there are kind of four dominant ways that, um, you know, that are attributed to kind of um, facilitating how Koreans, uh, Koreans wound up from the Far East in Central Asia. Uh, but it was interesting among the participants mapping kind of their family journeys and their family narratives of, of their journeys. Um, in actuality, um, it was, uh, at least in the experience of the participants, um, there was um, more of a diversity that existed in terms of how people like it wasn't a straight shot. There was um, kind of more stopping and getting off and then eventually making their way to Kazakhstan or going to different parts of um, the Soviet Union, and then coming back to to Central Asia. And so that was also kind of interesting to see. And this generally didn't come out, again, in the initial kind of, um, you know, uh, we were in the Far East and then we were here kind of narrative. But then as um, our interview team was kind of having conversations with people, and as people, as participants were also kind of circling back to older family members etc to double check about their migration histories it turned out that there was diversity of journeys that existed which um, was just really interesting to see as well so in terms of kind of you know the focus of this which is kind of thinking about you know where is home or what is the homeland um overwhelmingly most people kind of would just again when they were asked this question um they defaulted to South Korea as being kind of their predetermined homeland. Um, But what was really interesting to see was throughout the interviews um, that even though there was this defaulting to South Korea as being a predetermined homeland, there was clearly an ambivalence that came came through in all of the different responses. So, for example, again, there is this um, kind of feeling of being othered. So in this example, Dima, notes that there's a different there's a different term for Kazakhstan Koreans Saram or Soviet Korean. Um, It's just the way that it is because I'm definitely not Korean. And even if I go to Korea, they will not accept me as a Korean. And, and this was kind of um, a, a common sentiment uh, among um, different interviewees that if they went to Korea, that they would be treated differently. And this is corroborated by uh, work that um, Chang Soo has also done um, in looking at the experiences of Koreans, um, Q, uh, Central Asian Koreans in South Korea as well. Kind of similarly, then, it's like this idea of feeling foreign. So when Ludmilla, um visited South Korea Shared, when I, I when I just got there, I was I was excited that I was sur- surrounded by only Koreans. It was interesting to look at them. The people, they are a little bit different from us, but I felt that they were they are foreign. And in Kazakhstan, everyone feels as ours. But there I felt that they are foreign. And so this feeling of kind of, you know, um, this is not my home, actually, even though, you know, we have this kind of shared um, DNA. Um, You know, there is this kind of like removal, uh, similar to what Suda talks about in that earlier slide. Um, And then this kind of goes another level in terms of in in terms of negativity uh, in in regarding feeling um, actual discrimination. So edema... um, this is a different demo. Um, when asked if he would ever want to go to South Korea, he said, "I don't think that. About, I don't think so about myself." Previously, like I wanted to live and study there, but when I talked to people who lived and studied there, they didn't have a positive impression about life in South Korea. First of all, because of the way non-native people are being treated, they're being ignored. People don't talk to them. I knew one girl who was interviewing people there. Um, when she would approach people, they would stop talking until she leaves. She left, although she spoke Korean with a bit of an accent. It's just the way that they treat foreigners so for myself I've decided that I don't want to live and to study there so in his case like he was concerned about the discrimination that he would experience but he was also already kind of looking at himself as a foreigner and so he wasn't necessarily identifying himself as being Korean um, which was also kind of a a similar um, sentiment that was expressed by other interviewees as well Um, this kind of sense that um, we are not all equally Korean, um, but that there are kind of this, there's this kind of hierarchy that exists, uh, which some, which is something that um, Oka also talks about in her her scholarship as well. Um, kind of, you know, the other side of this coin then is that um, a, a, a majority of the participants also stated that um, even though they would somewhat begrudgingly attribute their home historic or historic homeland to being South Korea. Uh, they would say, but my home are, uh, my homeland now is, is Kazakhstan. Um, but these two participants in particular kind of reflect a problem, 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 a problem, of that as well or problem that as well. So Marina States, my motherland is kazakhstan the historic land is i believe a place where uh your roots come from but i don't know where my roots come are from honestly even my mother cannot say like where do my grandmother's roots come from that's why kazakhstan is my motherland when people ask me don't you want to visit your historical motherland korea i don't consider korea my historical motherland yeah there are koreans and by the way, Koreans in South Korea do not look like our, our local Koreans, as Russians in Russia do not look like, don't like our Russians, don't look like our Russians. Uh, it's very common. For example, our local Koreans go to Korea to earn money, they're looked as uh, a, a cheap working labor there. And so, you know, for Marina, there's kind of this um, prag, prag, pragmatism that she demonstrates in terms of, you know, I, I have no affinity towards um, Korea. and uh, you know, my connection is here, this is where I live, this is where I grew up, this is where my family is from. And so um, that kind of pragmatism, um, kind of pushing against this primordial, prim- primordial notion of, you know, kind of an ethnic homeland, um, wasn't something that was demonstrated in a lot of people, um, but was kind of particularly unique to Marina as well as a couple others. The other kind of um, notable example was from Lena, who said, Kazakhstan is my motherland now, it's where I was born. My historical motherland is North Korea. Now, this is kind of interesting more because of this attribution to um, my historical motherland being North Korea, uh, which is actually kind of, there was a small minority, there's a minority of of participants that um, said, okay, if I have to say that uh, my historical homeland is somewhere on the Korean peninsula, I guess it would really be North Korea. And geographically, that would be completely correct, actually, um, because the Hamgyong province is actually on the northern part of the peninsula. And so that level of nuance and thinking about, okay, like, you know, uh, when um, Koreans migrated northward, northward, um, the geopolitical situation between the north North and south Korea didn't exist. It was all one Korean empire. And so that attribution to their homeland being the northern part of the peninsula um, is is actually correct. And yet it was interesting because in follow-up kind of questions, um, most people said, but I don't want to attribute my homeland as being North Korea because it's not a very popular um, kind of decision or a popular kind of thing to, to state. Um, and so that's kind of where this aspect of diaspora space comes in, I think, because it's like thinking about the geopolitics and the role of um, North and South Korea in the global economy and in relationship to Kazakhstan today, Um, also informs this idea of where people would um, kind of consider, you know, where their um, historical roots are from. So um, to kind of start um, wrapping up, um, going back to the original questions of how do Kazakhstani Koreans engage in constructing, shaping, uh, negotiating and renegotiating their identities in their everyday lives, in this um, kind of particular geopolitical context, and how do these experiences broadly inform theorizing around diasporic identities and narratives. Um, Again, I think the idea of diaspora space is really useful because actually we see that, you know, the ways that Kazakhstani Koreans are engaging in um, constructing and kind of negotiating and renegotiating their identities in the Kazakhstani context is very much informed, not just by kind of um, their, uh, you know, sociocultural practices, et cetera, but also informed things like the geopolitical dynamics between um, South uh, and North Korea in relationship to Kazakhstan, um, also um, in relationship to Russia, actually. Um, so not represented in the data that I shared was some uh, participants saying that like, actually, I guess they would consider my historical homeland to be Russia um, and kind of the complexity of um, uh, of views around on that in terms of Russia's relationship with Kazakhstan as well. Um, and so thinking about how geopolitics really shapes um, their view of um kind of notions of home and homeland uh, but then also things like popular culture so um the popularity of things like k-pop in wanting to um kind of create that bridge between um you know kazakhstani koreans and south korea um and that kind of attribution um it was also kind of interesting to see um, in terms of like how they were negotiating their identities, particularly as Korea Koreans uh, and in relation to, um, you know, their like his, what what they constituted as their homeland. So kind of more broadly, um, I think that the Kazakhstan Korean case um, continues to demonstrate like the the importance of thinking about um, heterogeneity of diasporas as opposed to kind of thinking about, you know, the, the community as being one category or one type of group because even looking at kind of the different experiences and perspectives about how um, they see home and homeland, et cetera, as being informed by um, geopolitics and, um, you know, the global economy, et cetera, um, kind of demonstrates kind of the diversity that exists within this particular um, diaspora community. And then also how um, the concept of the diaspora space um, and thinking about relationality and configurations of power um, helps us understand um, the changing position of Kazakhstani koreans um, in the context that they're in. So thinking about them historically from imperial, the Imperial Russian kind of period into the Soviet period, and then now into the post-Soviet period, how they kind of occupy similar but different spaces um, under those different um, regimes. Um, and this is, I guess, kind of to, to to wrap up, like this is kind of the um, image and the discourse that really kind of s- sticks with me, particularly in relation to this project, which is um, back in 2016 when President, First, when First President Azbayev established um, the Thanksgiving Day, celebrating the Assembly of the Peoples of Kazakhstan. Um, you know, there was this big speech that he provided actually in relationship to the Kazakhstani Koreans. And he kind of recounted um, seeing, um, you know, the train stop in the middle of the steppe and um, seeing Koreans, um, you know, uh, 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 disembarking from these trains and digging for potatoes in the middle of the steppe in the middle of winter and how Kazakhs welcomed um, the Koreans into their homes. And it's this narrative that's constantly repeated, like this narrative that you know, Kazakhs welcomed Koreans to their homes as, um, as welcome guests. And um, within the um, Kazakhs and Korean community, among the different associations, that is a uh, discourse that continues to be reproduced. And so Konstantin Kim here says, you know, certainly there is no way we could pay Kazakhs back uh, what they have done for all the nations that have been forced to relocate there isn't any other your treasures in the world. Nonetheless, we must remember this token of life and praise it to stay united to preserve peace as that's what's making continue thriving in our country. It's a good thing we have this holiday. It's a symbol of friendship and it's a true national holiday. And it's this idea of like paying back and this theme of like being on like being guests. And I think that's kind of the question that I'm left with and thinking about, you know, the, the experience of diasporas. Um, and going back to bra, it's this question of when does a the location then become home? Because if you are a guest, you're perpetually actually not home. Um, the, the metaphor of the guest uh, inherently positions um, people in uh, a particular type of um, spatial, spatiotemporal kind of relationship. And so, what is the difference between feeling at home, going back to bra, and staking a claim to a place as one's own? It's quite possible to feel at home and yet the experience of social exclusions may prohibit public proclamations of the place as home and so kind of going back to the title of um, this paper which is when is home Um, you tend to think about home as being a place like where is home so diaspora literature tends to kind of think about you know um, is the historic home of a particular diaspora group uh, their ethnic homeland, or so on and forth. But I think there's also this aspect of when does home, the kind of, when does a place become home? And so, this kind of question of when is home, or when um, does a place become home, is something that I'm still left with in thinking about and thinking through the experience um, of, of, um, of diasporic groups in general, but diasporas in general, but uh, in particular in the Kazakhstani context. So thank you.